Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verses 23 to 31. It's called the Believer's Prayer. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider, your, the, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Well, good morning. It is a good morning, even though it's raining outside and has been raining for the last few days. It is still a good morning to gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, just before we get into the message, Clint was talking about changing the words to songs. And if my memory serves me right, if I remember my uh, church history classes, there was a time in church history when the hymns that were sung were actually sung to the tune of those sung in the beer halls. Uh, because those are the songs that people were familiar with. And so they took the familiar tunes, but they changed the words. And so very much along the lines of what Clint was sharing there. Uh, and it, just one more thought, too. We've, we're blessed to have some land here as the church, and we've got picnic tables and a play structure for the kids. And I just want to encourage each of you during the, the weeks of this summer uh, when you come to church and the weather's nice outside, why not bring your uh, lunch along and just stay and uh, enjoy fellowship with one another? So uh, we did that last year, and that seemed to be uh, well-received, and so I just invite you to do that again this year. All right, let's get into it. During the final meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, and shortly before he was betrayed by Judas, Jesus issued a dire warning to his followers. Remember, he said, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, I imagine in those moments that those words probably did not have much of an impact on the disciples. Because right in those moments, life seemed pretty good. They were celebrating the Passover meal. They were together. Uh, they had no idea what the next few hours would hold uh, just a few days before, Jesus had been welcomed into Jerusalem as a king. Life seemed good, but within a matter of hours, that would all change. The disciples would soon be scattered as Jesus is arrested. Peter, in fear of his own life, will deny knowing Jesus three times, and their lives will be turned upside down. 
First, they'll be turned upside down by the death of Jesus, and then they'll be turned upside down by his resurrection. Both were life-altering events for them. And it's just a few weeks after the resurrection that Peter and John will be arrested, and they'll be imprisoned because the priests and the Sadducees had been greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Before being released, the authorities warned them with many threats and forbid them to speak in the name of Jesus. And when they continued to do so, they were arrested again. Soon the persecution would ramp up. Stephen would be stoned to death. The Jerusalem believers would be scattered as they fled for their lives. And James, the brother of John, would be put to death with the sword. This was the reality of life in the early church. Fast forward a number of years, and we see the same things are still happening. As Paul takes the gospel message to Jew and Gentile alike, opposition arises against him. And what we find in the scriptures is that he is threatened, he's imprisoned, he's beaten, and he's flogged as he proclaims the news that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had died for our sins, was buried, and then was raised to life on the third day. Some of those who opposed him followed him from town to town, slandering his name making accusations against him to the authorities, and doing whatever they could to hinder his ministry. And eventually Paul would be executed for his faith. Now, with those thoughts in mind, let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading with verse 14. And what we're going to see is that the Thessalonian believers were no strangers to persecution themselves. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning with verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God, and they are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. So the Thessalonians are persecuted for what they proclaim, and they suffer for what they've believed. And we see that same pattern of proclamation and persecution throughout the history of the church. I recently came across an article, a Forbes article from January of this year. It speaks of an organization, an NGO called Open Doors, Open Doors works on behalf of persecuted Christians around the world. Open Doors each year publishes what they call a, a watch list of the top 50 countries where persecution of Christians is most severe. Uh, and that list is updated every year. Uh, for the last several years, North Korea has been uh, the one at the top of that list, the most brutal regime uh, in their interaction with Christians. Uh, this year, that changed. Afghanistan has topped that list this year, or last year. And there, under Taliban rule, Christians are actively being hunted down. And when found, the men are executed. And the women might be executed as well, but they're just as likely to be in, uh, facing a lifetime of imprisonment or slavery. North Korea came in at number two last year. When someone is found to be a Christian in that country, both they and their entire family will either be deported to labor camps as criminals or simply executed on the spot. In Somalia, having a Bible or Christian literature in your possession is grounds for a death sentence. 
In Libya, Christians are subject to kidnap, rape, and enslavement, and murder. Believers in Nigeria face similar threats. Abductions, forcible conversions, forcible marriages, rape, and sexual violence. 4,650 Christians were known to have been murdered in Nigeria last year alone. And on and on it goes. And as shocking as these things might be, we ought not be surprised when we hear of our Christian brothers and sisters suffering for their faith. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul reminds Timothy, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I want you to notice the connection in that verse. There is a connection uh, between a godly life and persecution. It's those who want to live a godly life who are likely to experience persecution. It is not the nominal Christian who's going to typically suffer in this way. It's not the one who plays at faith or who projects an illusion of faithfulness that will face the hatred of the world. Because when we live just as the world lives, when we value what the world values, when we make the priorities of this world our own, then what cause has the world to hate us? We are just a reflection of them. And so if we live in the same way that those bound to this world system do, there's no cause for that hatred. You see, most people don't care what you believe until that belief begins to impact how you live your life. So when your faith leads you to say no to what the world embraces with yes, that's when the world will rise up against you. It's those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus that will be persecuted and suffer. But folks, that leads us to an important question. How do we understand the persecution and suffering of believers in light of an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God? How do we reconcile those two realities? There are really only three options, I think, that face us. First is this. God is able to protect us, but does not desire to. Secondly, that God desires to protect us, but is not able to. Or, thirdly, God is able to protect us from persecution in this world, but he permits it because he desires something greater in the big picture of which persecution is a part of the puzzle. And it's this third possibility that aligns most closely with what we see in the pages of the Bible. We need to remember that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And while we may not always be able to see it, we read and believe that God's ways and thoughts are better than ours, even on our very best days. Persecution that broke out against the church after the death of Stephen is a great example of this. People had to flee from their homes at a moment's notice. They likely had to leave behind much, if not all, that they owned in the process. Some would have been beaten, some in prison, some may have been put to death as Stephen was. I imagine it was a time of great fear and trial. And some of the believers might have prayed at that time something like this. Father God, stop the persecution. Strike down those who seek to strike down us. Deliver us from this evil. Let me keep my job. Let me keep my house. Let me not have to start over somewhere new. But what we, had we been there, may have been tempted to pray against was used by God to grow the church. You see, these believers who spread outwards from Jerusalem because of the persecution... They took their faith with them to all the places that they journeyed. So in the places they fled to, they began to tell their new neighbors about Jesus. 
being gentlemen with the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection. And some of those they shared with believed in God's church grew even in the face of persecution. You see, God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So if persecution is to be expected, if it is permitted by God, how are we to endure it? How are we to persevere through it? Those are difficult questions to, be, to answer. Uh, let's be honest, I don't think any of us here have ever experienced persecution of the kind that we're talking about this morning. We haven't lived through it, and yet that persecution may eventually become the reality we face here in our own country. If that's the case, how do we prepare ourselves? What will we hold on to when all is pulled out from under us? And it's questions like these that I want to try to uh, provide a, an answer to in the time we have remaining this morning. But again, how do we speak into these things when we've never experienced them or lived through them ourselves? For certain, we look to the scriptures, right? We consider how God's people have responded to persecution down through the centuries. And with that as a starting point, I think it's also valid to listen to the testimony and to learn from the experience of those that have lived or are living through those things in the present day. Perhaps the best place to start is with what persecution actually means. Because understanding what we experience helps us in facing it, enduring it, and even thriving in the midst of it. So we need to accept that persecution, when it comes, does not mean that something has gone wrong with God's plans. It does not mean that those who are being persecuted are being punished by God. It does mean that those being persecuted have likely lived in such a way that their faith has impacted how they have lived. And in a world system which has hated Jesus, those who seek to live the life he has called us to will be hated and persecuted as well. The disciples, for their part, when they were persecuted, they rejoiced that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They rejoiced that they'd been counted worthy to suffer. How different is that from what our initial response would be in the midst of persecution? Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, he said, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. And when we look to the suffering of those who've gone before us, uh, we can think of Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. The persecution the prophets endured, the martyrdom of many of the disciples that, that many of the disciples were faced with. We're reminded of this, that God often chooses to walk with us through those valleys of life, the difficult situations we face, rather than simply delivering us from them. Paul wrote and said, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You see, the apostles did not lose heart when imprisoned. They did not give up when beaten. They did not renounce their faith when faced with death because they knew and they believed that God was sovereign and that he was at work in the midst of the things they were suffering. And they believed just as strongly that God was present with them in the midst of their suffering. They may have been persecuted, but they had not been abandoned by God. I enjoy reading uh, autobiographies and biographies 
particularly of Christian missionaries or those who have um, been persecuted for their faith. And, and a recurring theme comes up in so many of those uh, books that I've read. And, and that theme is this, is that despite the persecution these individuals experienced, they had this uh, deeper experience of God's presence with them. The worse things got, the closer God seemed to be to them. They believed that God was present with them in the midst of their suffering. It's amazing. It's counterintuitive, and yet this has been their experience, that when all has been lost, what has been gained is better still. And it's in their words that I hear an echo of Paul's own thoughts as he wrote to the Philippians. He said, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Every year since 1962, a small number of people in the Philippines have allowed themselves to be crucified on Good Friday. This is something they've chosen to do. And so nails are driven through their hands and their feet into the wooden beams, and then the cross upon which they've been impaled is lifted up, and they're left to hang there for five to ten minutes before they're taken down again. One man has been crucified 33 times. I don't believe this is what Paul meant when he wrote about the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. There is nowhere in the scriptures that we're told to be physically crucified, to inflict suffering on ourselves or on others for that matter, or even to seek out persecution. Instead, and in part, we share in Christ's sufferings when we experience the evil in this world because of our faith. When we are rejected, ridiculed, beaten, and so on, this is when we share in that fellowship of suffering, when we're persecuted because of the message we proclaim and when we suffer for the faith to which we hold. When persecution comes and we suffer losses in this world, some will grow bitter and disillusioned because they falsely believe that we are entitled to or deserving of all these good things we have in this life. But that's not the case. All those good things we have and own and can take part in, they are not our right. We are not entitled to them. They are a gift and a blessing. Uh, scripture says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. You see, you and I, we are simply stewards of all that God has entrusted to our care. Our lives and our worth are not founded on the possessions we own or the wealth that we have accumulated. Instead, God has entrusted these things to us that we might use them to bring glory to his name, to build his kingdom, to help those in need. But these things are not the sum total of our lives. Hebrews 10.34 reads like this. It says, You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Can you imagine going home today and finding the government had taken your property, that you no longer had a home to live in or your equipment had been taken? Would you have rejoiced as you received that? I don't think that would be our first reaction. 
But they says, you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew that yourselves had better and lasting possessions. In other words, our hearts and eyes are not to be fixed on the things of this world, but to be fixed on Jesus Christ and the kingdom that is to come. We need to remember that this world is not all there is and that the things that we treasure here in this life will tend to spoil, fade, and pass away. They will perish. And that's why Jesus warns us, saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, this world is not our home. If we are in Christ, our citizenship is now in heaven. And this is what kept the Thessalonians going even when they faced severe persecution. Remember those verses we, we read earlier in this series in chapter 1? Paul writes of the Thessalonians' endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were able to endure their sufferings because of the hope uh, their hope was not in the things, nor the people, nor the powers of this world. Their hope was in the one whom God had raised from the dead and who would one day return in power and glory. Can we say that is where our hope is founded? Do we have such a hope and a belief that if persecution comes, we're able to endure because we believe that God is who he says he is and that Jesus is the Son of God who laid down his life that our sins might be forgiven, that he was buried uh, and raised from the dead three days later and that he is coming again. That is the heart of the belief that will enable us to endure with hope in the midst of the difficult times. The suffering and persecution of his children does not escape God's notice. He's not unaware of the trials of his people. Jesus spoke to those of his day and he said, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. I can't tell you what that reward will look like. I don't even think we have the capacity to fully grasp what that would look like. Because our knowledge of rewards is based on the things of this world. We think of rewards in terms of uh, financial gain or promotion or trophies or something like that. I, I think the rewards that are spoken of here are something beyond uh, our grasp of understanding fully at this point. I can't help but think that any reward that would make up for and surpass the sufferings that some Christians have faced in this life, I can't help but think that they're beyond our ability to fully comprehend. When we are rejected, despised, and abused for our faith, we need to keep in mind this. Those who persecute us are really rejecting God. And they're rejecting the gospel message of love and mercy, hope and forgiveness and grace that we proclaim. And in those times, it is not our place to return evil for evil. Scripture reminds us that it is God's place to avenge and not ours. Our response is to be counterintuitive. It is to be different from what the world would expect. According to the word of God, we are to pray for those who persecute us. We're to bless those who curse us. And we're to return good for the evil that is done to us. We cannot do those things without the Holy Spirit moving, and moving within us and empowering us to do so. 
That type of love is not in the heart of man apart from the Spirit of God dwelling within us. To his fellow Christians who are suffering for their faith, James encouraged them with these words. He said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And here's something else that's counterintuitive. Persecution can be a blessing and a benefit to both the individual and to the Christian church as a whole. Because such testing produces perseverance. And perseverance helps us to grow in spiritual maturity. Persecution tends to weed out those who are Christian in name only. And what remains is a strengthened fellowship, a community bound together by a shared faith, a shared suffering, and a shared hope. During times of persecution, the prayers of God's people increase. Their fellowship intensifies. Their hunger for the word of God grows, and the hope that we have in Christ deepens and becomes ever more real. You see, persecution becomes an opportunity for the people of God to bear witness to the truth of who God is and of the love that he calls us to. When they were in Philippi, Paul and Silas were beaten, they were severely flogged, and they were imprisoned. But instead of bemoaning all that had happened to them, we're told they spent the night praying and singing hymns to God. And as they did so, the other prisoners and the guards were listening. And then when the earthquake struck and the prison doors burst open, the jailer, thinking that the prisoners had all escaped, was ready to kill himself. But when Paul tells them the prisoners are all accounted for, the jailer falls to his knees before the disciples and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, the jailer had been so moved by the prayers of these people that had been beaten so severely, who had been imprisoned. He was moved by their singing and their behavior that despite what they had suffered, he wanted to know how he could have the same hope that they had. And by the next morning, the jailer and his whole household had come to a saving faith in Christ Jesus. Folks, that's the power of light over darkness, of good over evil, and of love over hatred. In just a few moments, we're going to share in the celebration of the Lord's Supper together. And so it's fitting that we consider how Jesus responded to those who persecuted him. Again, we are called not to hate, but rather to love our enemies. And we may never express the character of God more so than we do when we show genuine love to those who hate us. See, because that's what God has done for us in Jesus. God looked upon a world that had rejected him, a world that had hated him and scorned him, and instead of returning evil for evil, God gave the life of his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God has offered his enemies grace and mercy, and as we do likewise, we proclaim the gospel in both word and deed. Therefore, as it says in the scriptures, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May he who forgave his enemies, who returned good for the evil done to him, and who looked beyond what we can see, hear, and touch in this world to the kingdom, his kingdom of his Father, may he become our example in life and in death. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he spoke to them the things that lay at the very heart of our faith and hope. He said, For I received from the Lord 
but I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. As we share in the bread and cup this morning, may we do so with gratitude in our hearts and as in remembrance of Jesus who gave his life, who took upon himself the wages of our sin in order that we might be reconciled to God. In him we have forgiveness of sin. In him we have received new life. The old has gone, the new has come. Let the name of our Lord be praised.